Good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR, uh, 855 on the AM band. And, of course, it's Sunday morning and time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to say a very good morning to Mr Stephen Ryan from Dixonia Rare Plants. Morning, Stephen. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everybody out there. And it is going to be a lovely day, but if you happen to be coming down the Calder Freeway, be a bit careful. I hit black ice this morning, so I had a very exciting trip down. Um, he more than hit it. He went right off the road. So <laughs> thank goodness go. we're here, yes, all we're to, here. in one Look, piece. And... Nothing stops me. I just keep going. <laughs> um, so, uh, But, yes, it should be a lovely day out in the garden, and because it's been so wet, dare I say I'm enjoying the slosh, I get annoyed by people who actually say, oh, I wish it'd stop raining. Um, we're going to go into spring with a bang. We are. This year, it's going to be fantastic. The yep. ground has got proper moisture in it. Um, I was digging a, a, a trench right up through the middle of the vegetable garden earlier this week because uh, we're going to put a, a downpipe from the water tanks out to our back pond instead of it going to uh, through the stormwater to the street. So right. we're putting this drain through and the ground is damp down, way down. Oh, it's really wow. fantastic. So um, it'll be interesting when I get further up because I've only, well, well I'm using the royal we, I actually didn't dig the trench <laughs> this week, but uh, somebody else did. Uh, but I'll be getting to dig the rest because it'll be harder soil. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see when I get up past up, up into the unprepared bits where the paths are uh, at the top of the veggie garden as to how damp it is in the clay under that. Because, yes. you know, the veggie garden's got soil that's about a metre deep, so um, after years of preparation. Uh, so, um, yeah, so the water's got right down and there's puddles and I've had to sort of knock the spiders out of the gumboots and all that sort of stuff. So it's actually really nice to have a winter like this again after what I think is quite some years. Well, it we has had a proper been, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, hopefully everybody's tanks are filling, dams are filling, reservoirs are hopefully topping up. Um, of course, the state government started the diesel plant, so it's bound to rain. Um, <laughs> it's Murphy's Law. Yeah, yeah, I don't know what people's attitudes to that is, but it just seems to somehow be the way it's going to work. Uh, so, you know, crank it up and we'll get rain. Uh, so it's, it's fantastic. So I'm really pleased. And, and all my plants seem to be enjoying it as well. Brilliant, so brilliant. It's good season. Excellent. We also have to say a very good morning to James Beatty. Good morning, James. Good morning, Pam, and good morning, everyone. It's very very cold morning out there this morning. I, I was going to walk in and moan about the cold, and then I found out that Stephen hit black ice. So <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed thought, to. <laughs> yeah, I think it's not it's not too bad actually. It puts, it puts everything in perspective. <laughs> it does it? absolutely. Yes, it's, it I was going to have, have a bit of a grumble, but no, no, not not at all now. Yeah, I like the cold weather. I have to say, I don't like working in it all that much, especially if it's wet and cold. Uh, and being a nurseryman, <laughs> you are inclined to have to do that yes, sometimes. Yes. So that can be a bit. Unfortunate. Um, but um, really, I'd much rather rug up than have to take off clothes. I mean, you get to a point in the summer where you, it starts to get embarrassing, so you can only get so naked. Yes, and, nude gardening uh, for clients. Yeah, nude can gardening. Can go awry. Yeah, yes. yes, it can be a problem, especially if you're using <laughs> sharp implements. Um, so, um, yeah, so I don't mind rugging up a bit and, you know, getting things done and what have you. I, I, it's easy to warm up. You just need to get stuck into it. And exactly. then, you know, you peel off layers to adjust the temperature. It's That's much, right. Much and if you do get really soggy wet i mean it's, it's not that far to get indoors and once you get indoors strip off warm shower yep. nice hot cup of something and then you've got that fantastic feeling of accomplishment that you've done something yep you know, True. So, yeah get into it <laughs> i've been doing a lot of weeding in my nature strip lately i'm establishing a bit of a native grassland ah, out the front yeah. um and i'm just kind of trying to help the ecology along to a certain extent and see how it's forming but yesterday 
I couldn't go out there and weed for more than 10 or 15 minutes at a time because as soon as the sun would disappear behind the clouds, forget it. It was it was really freezing. Oh, the air was James, really I think you need to come up and do some work experience at my nursery. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and actually, I've got a poor guy starting on work experience on Monday, so it'll be oh, interesting okay. to see how he gets on. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yes, yeah, so I hope he's made of stern, tough stuff. Because, Did you get snow up there the other week? Uh, we got a sprinkling on the ground at the nursery, but it was really just that little bit further up the hill where they got a proper uh, coating of snow. Mm-hmm. So um, I have to say I don't look forward to the snow with the nursery. Because, well, we were closed one of the days when it did snow, so it didn't matter. But it's pointless to have snow down because everybody comes up to the mountain to see the snow. Mm-hmm. And once they've turned all of the public snow into brown sludge <laughs> then they come into the nursery that might have some pristine snow and they walk straight through the garden beds to get at it oh. you know so i'd be actually better off to close the nursery on you a snow be. day yeah. uh, because i'm not going to make any sales mm. uh it's very hard to say that thing under the white blanket over there is in fact a whatever <laughs> um and uh you it's you just might as well not be there yes You're better to lock the gates and go home yes um uh but it's look it's fun for the kids everybody has a good time when the snow's down and it might be sounding a bit Scroogeish and uh, <laughs> what have you about it all, but snow isn't a great help for the nursery industry. I have to say it's very good for the coffee industry and the hot chocolate industry, but uh, yeah, not for the nursery industry. But it doesn't do any harm to the plants I grow. I mean, I don't grow anything that's particularly uh, damaged by cold. Uh, and in fact, snow is less of a problem than heavy frost. Mm. Yes, you know, because it puts a warming blanket on things. Mm. In fact, mm. uh, so its weight is the only thing you've got to watch. I know when I grew up at our old family nursery that was right up the top of the mountain, um, we'd regularly get heavy dumps. And my job first thing in the morning was to go around and gently shake snow out of things. That could be brittle because as the sun comes out, the snow gets heavy and wet and it just smashes things to the ground. Mm. So uh, I can remember having rhododendrons snapped in half and mm. all sorts of things, baronias lifted out of the ground with the oh, weight of snow. Right. Uh, uh, but, of course, it's been years since that's happened. So uh, uh, so we've got a wetter year this year, but we still haven't had the sort of dumps of snow that I can remember as a child up at Mount Macedon. Mm. Because you know, we really got some serious snow when I was a kid. Mm. Used to get so peeved if it was on a weekend instead of a school day. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, at least a couple of times a year we get snowed in uh, up there. So, yep. oh, who good. knows? Maybe the weather patterns are turning around a bit for a while. Well, yeah, it's, it's certainly been great to have a, a real genuine winter, though. Oh, look, I'm sure it deals with a few bugs. and Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, there, there's lots of... Benefits. It's actually good for the soil to get frost and snow and things like that because it helps aerate soil and and snow soaks into the ground really well mm. once it melts. Mm. So after a good dump of snow, everything turns to slush and mud because it it, it really soaks in. It doesn't run off. Yes. So yes. Uh, yeah. So it's all good, I guess. Yep. And as long as you've got warm clothes and a fire. <laughs> prerequisites for living in Macedon. Absolutely. <laughs> it is changing and we are a bit all over the place because we did have a very late start to winter this year, but now yes, it's come. Right. It's come with a real vengeance. Well, we so. didn't get really any autumn frosts. No, no, you we know, didn't. I mean, my whole garden, and I've got quite a few things in the garden that are considered frost tender, and mm. so I expect a fair bit of blackened stuff. Mm. Um, it just didn't happen. And then I went away to Italy for four weeks, and it was it must have been while I was away we had a few because when I got back I had the blackened plants, and that was in June. Mm. Yes. You know, so there was absolutely not one autumn frost in our garden this year. Yep. Very strange. Mm. And anyhow. Oh, well. Is anything happening? There are things happening, and I'm <laughs> going to get straight on to it right this minute. Um, first up, a reminder that uh, next Sunday, the 31st of July, there will be um, a talk 
down at uh, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. Uh, now, this is the Elizabeth Murdoch Scholarship Presentation by Sturt Gibbs and Trevor Seppings. They uh, had, uh, there were two staff members who went on an exploratory trip to South Australia that went right as far as Port Augusta. Now, their main objectives was to gain information and practical insights into the cultivation and cultural requirements, including the environmental tolerance of a range of plant species potentially suited for cultivation in the Australian garden down there at Cranbourne. So they're giving a talk, uh, 2 o'clock till 3.30 next Sunday. It'll take place in the Australian Garden Auditorium, again down at Cranbourne Botanic Gardens. And uh, if you'd like more information on that one, you can phone 8774-2483. Now, cost if you're um, a member of the Friends Group, $15. Um, if you're not a member, $20 or $10 for students. Now, also uh, coming up, this will take place on Friday, August the 5th. The Australian Plants uh, uh, Society Keelor Plains Group um, is having their next meeting then on the 5th of August, commencing at 7.50pm. Uh, now, uh, they're going to have as a speaker Chris Nicholson, who's Royal Park Officer, and he will give an illustrated talk on the Australian Native Garden within Royal Park. Now, Chris will be giving a brief history of the garden and pointing out various features like attractive plants, wildlife attracting attracting components and landscape design elements. Now, the talk will take place at their usual meeting uh, point, which is Airport West Uniting Church. That's on the corner of Roberts Road and Glenis Avenue in Airport West, and supper will be provided. If you'd like more details, you can phone Anne, and her number is 9336-3228. That's 9336-3228. Now, coming up uh, Saturday, the 6th of August, is the next meeting at Pepper Tree Place. They're having a, a workshop at 10.30 on keeping healthy chickens with Craig Castry. So you can learn uh, all about keeping healthy chickens the natural, organic way. Uh, now, Craig has uh, is a published author of Edible Gardens, A Practical Guide, and he will help you decide if chooks are for you and your garden, as well as how to care for them. You do need to register for that uh, workshop. Uh, you can send a text to 0421 402 512. Um, now, cost is uh, $15, full cost, or $10 for concession. Also taking place on that day, uh, there'll be a swap table um, with any uh, excess uh fruit or veggies you have, there'll be the volunteer-run nursery, there'll be a pop-up uh, cafe, uh, Reiki with Joe Massey, and there'll be a clothes swap as well. Now, that all takes place at Pepper Tree Place, which is uh, 512 Sydney Road in Coburg. It's actually on the corner of Sydney Road and Bell Street there. That workshop that I mentioned will run from 10am through to 2 P oh, sorry, the whole day will st will run 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. The workshop will run 10.30 till 12 noon. Okay, now uh, also coming up, uh, Friends of Burnley Gardens are presenting Pruning and the Art of Espalier Workshop with Chris England. Now, uh, this will be demonstrating in the Burnley Gardens Orchard. 
Chris will show you how to prune for different types of fruit tree training. Then you have a go under his watchful eye. And later under supervision, you'll work on your own tree and your choice of apple or pear to create a beautiful piece of living art. And, uh, of course, you get to take your tree home with you. Now, uh, it will take place Saturday the 6th of August, 10 a.m. through to 1 p.m., the venue is the nursery there at Burnley campus. You do need to wear closed shoes and bring cleaned secateurs. All plant materials will be supplied, including a bare-rooted fruit tree to the value of $30. Now, bookings are essential. 9035-6815 and leave a message. Or you can email friends.burnley at gmail.com. Now, cost... For uh, members of the Friends Group, $84. For non-members, $99. That includes morning tea and plenty of parking in Yarra Boulevard. Uh, Just a couple more I'll mention, and I might get to a few more a bit later. Uh, Coming up 13th and 14th of August is um, the Waverley Bonsai Group's Bonsai Show for 2016. 10 a.m. till 4.30 on the Saturday the 13th and 10 till 4 on the Sunday. It's taking place at Mount Waverley Community Centre, which, of course, is on the corner of Stevenson's Road and Miller Crescent in Mount Waverley. Admission, adults only $5, children under 16 free. And uh, one more that I will quickly mention. Uh, This is also from Friends of Burnley. They have their AGM and following their AGM, they'll be having an illustrated talk by um, founder of Friends of Burnley uh, Gardens, Sandy Pullman, and she'll be talking about uh, women gardeners. Uh, 1899, of course, when uh, women were admitted to Burnley's uh, School of Horticulture for the first time, and uh, Sandy will be talking all about some of those women and why it was such a scandalous event to take place back then. Yeah, how dare they? Oh, yes. <laughs> and they weren't chaperoned. <clears throat> My goodness. Unheard of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As a, so that's all taking place Tuesday the 16th of August at um, uh, the University of Melbourne Burnley campus, uh, meeting room number 10, 6 o'clock for the AGM, 7 o'clock for drinks and nibbles, and then 7.30 for the talk. Um, it's free if you attend the AGM or $5 for members or $15 for visitors. And uh, again, if you'd like inquiries, friends.burnley at gmail.com or telephone 9035-6861. Okay, well, it's more than time we invited our listeners to join us this morning. If you have a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. We've got Stephen Ryan and James Beatty in the studio this morning. So do give us a call. That number is 94190155. 94190155. James, you came in clutching a little pot. Yes, yes, I've got a which makes one smile just to look at it. <laughs> it I does. know, it's so adorable. It's so cute. It's one of my favorite little South African bulbs, um the Albaca spiralis. And I was kind of I was kind of looking when I was next next on three CR because I was wanting to bring it in when it was in flower, but I don't think it's gonna I don't think it's gonna come off this year, but maybe next year. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful little tough tough. I've been really surprised by how how easy it is to grow. 
um, you know, we're always being asked as as gardeners, you know, what's what's a what's a no maintenance plant, and we all say that there isn't such a thing. Well, I suspect that this actually could be such a thing. Um, I basically only apply a little bit of slow release fertilizer when it starts growing um, in autumn, mm-hmm. um, when the first little little leaves start coming out on it, and. From that point on, I just I leave it outside. It survives on natural rainfall alone, and then when we when we start to get less and less rain coming into spring and summer, and you know not a lot of summer rain at all, I I take it I put it under the eaves of the house and and don't take it out again until until the following autumn when it re-sprouts. So um, it is it is extremely easy to grow, and it's got. It's called albacca spiralis. Spiralis describes the leaves on it. It's it's one. It's I think one of its common names is the corkscrew plant. Yeah, for the, obvious reasons. Yes, it, it has corkscrewed ends to the leaves. Yeah, it's um, absolutely gorgeous. Yeah. Um, Which is its main claim to fame. And the flowers are cute. The flowers are really yeah. darling. I reckon. Yeah, but they're not. They're not brightly coloured. It's sort of more shades of green in a sense. Yeah. Uh, so it is the novelty of these spiralled leaves Absolutely. It, that, that really gets people. I'd, Children I'd of all it, ages. I'd nickname <laughs> it the Shirley Temple plant. Yeah, yeah it, it is. It's a strange little bulb. I've actually got it growing in the rock garden at home, so it survives up at Macedon yeah, perfectly okay. well. Right. And I get odd self-sown seedlings that pop up in different spots through right. my rock garden. Yep. And it's cohabitating with... All of I dare I say it, all my South African oxaluses and other things I've <laughs> got in my rock garden. Yep. Uh, and it's really cute. It's mm. a lovely little mm. thing. Very, very pretty. I really love the little flowers on it. They're, they're almost like little, um, they're almost like pale yellow snowdrops or something. They're yep. not dissimilar. Yeah, yeah. They've, got, they've got that sort of bell-like flower to okay. them. And yep. the whole plant's only a few centimetres tall. Mm. I mean, yep. we're talking about mm. a quite small plant. So uh, a rock garden, or as James has in a nice little pot, mm. where you can sit it up on the on the barbecue table or whatever and enjoy it whilst it's doing its thing. It's sitting uh, on top idea. of the chimney at the moment. I just uh, remember yeah. to take it off before I light it. It's, That's yeah, a good so. idea. <laughs> Actually, speak, speaking of chimneys, I got home last night and I I thought, oh, gee, it's cold. I better light the fire. And I pulled the grate off and a wood duck flew out. Oh. And it obviously come down the chimney uh, and was in the fireplace right. when I got home. I thought, when I looked through the grate, I thought, that's funny. It, it, the, the kindling and everything that I'd set up in there uh, looked slightly disarrayed. And I just thought, oh, it must have fallen down. And here's this poor wood duck in there. Just making house. Yeah, yes, it, it was good. quite pleased to be released, actually. I uh, bet. Yes, yeah, so I grabbed hold of it and opened the front door and off it flew. <laughs> uh, much to my pleasure, because I've had a, two possums down the chimney as well over the years, and the first time I've had a duck. It's not quite as graceful throwing the possums in the air. They don't, no, they, they don't, don't tend to fly. They away. don't fly no. in the same sort of way as the, as, as the duck did. But uh, yeah, that was a really interesting thing to happen. Um, but yes, I did light the fire after I took the duck out. So, I'm so sorry. pleased. Yes. <laughs> so is the duck. Yes, the duck is very pleased, although they're delicious. <laughs> uh, sorry, I interrupted. You mentioned no, no, fires, and it came straight into my head. <laughs> uh. But yes, look, it's one of my favourite little favourite little novelty plants that you can grow. Um, they're, they're not that easy to find. I was going to say, um, it's not a plant I've seen around terribly much. I mean, yep. I haven't grown it commercially, uh, mainly because I haven't got around to doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got it years ago from, I think it was from Gary Reed or one of those, you know, rare South African bulb-collecting type, yep. mail-order type yep. nurseries. Yep. Uh, so I think that's where I got mine from originally was through Gary. But it's certainly not a plant that you see around mm. terribly often. I got this around three years ago at Collector's Corner. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. okay. Road. Yep. Yep. But it was the first time I'd ever seen it there, so mm. I'm not sure how often they get them in. Or, yeah. But um, it was just a tiny thing when I got it. And um, it's it's it grows pretty well year after year. It gets, you know, it gets quite large. The ones that you have in the ground, they'd have quite a lot of foliage on them. Would they, yeah, or? yeah, they, they, they tend to clump slightly. Right. Although I find the seedlings don't seem to come up near the parent plant. You'll find the seedling will come up sort of 
several feet away. Yeah, okay. Uh, and so it's popping up in odd spots between the rocks and the rock garden and often into little crevices where you'd never actually get something in, but mm. it's just a lovely spot to have something come up naturally. Yeah, mm. excellent. Uh, I love plants that self-seed in that sort of way where they don't do it in such vigour that they become a nuisance, yep. but where they do self-seed, yep. uh, they nearly always come up somewhere good. Yep. You know, some plants just seem to have a knack for that, and this little Elbuca spiralis is, is just like that. So I don't think it'll ever take over my garden, but I'll always have little clumps of it. Little bits and pieces. Yeah, which is really sweet. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's and so it obviously sets viable seed and what have you at my place, and that's probably what I should be doing is collecting some seed and raising a batch at some mm. stage because mm. um, it shouldn't be too hard to raise from seed. Most of those things are easy enough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. Okay, and you've brought in a few bits and pieces to Yeah, look, it's, it's, it's high winter and it's when a lot of the really interesting winter flowering shrubs are in bloom. So that's what I thought I would bring along this morning uh, is some of the interesting um, cool climate um, shrubby type plants that you don't see around in people's gardens much and maybe some of them you should. Uh, and, of course, one of my favourite winter flowering plants, apart from winter sweet, which I talk about regularly, and I went out of my way not to bring that this morning, <laughs> um, uh, are the witch hazels, uh, the hamamalis. Uh, they are stunning plants. Not always the easiest to make happy in the garden. You've got to have a spot where they get plenty of light, but you don't want to have them where they get that sort of 45 degrees and a howling northwesterly yep. because it'll knock them about. They're like a soil that's a bit organically rich, so plenty of leaf mould and compost in the soil, well-drained but not too dry dry. Uh, if you can do that, there's no real reason why you shouldn't be able to grow them. Uh, I've got one growing as an espalier, which looks fantastic. Mm. Um, they grow into large shrubs, and depending on which variety you buy as to what sort of form the plant will take. Uh, I mean, I've got an orange one here called Jolina, which is actually the one I've espaliered, but if you Grow that as a freestanding shrub. It will grow up to about three metres tall, maybe four eventually, uh, in a fairly upright vase shape. Okay. But if you grow pallida, which is this lovely sort of rich sulfury yellow one that I've got here. If you grow that as a freestanding shrub, it tends to grow out in flattened layers. And so I took the lower branches off mine when it was a young plant and I've allowed it to sort of branch at a head head level or a little more. And it's gone out into this broad, flat canopy virtually. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, I mean, it's been in the ground dare I say, probably 30 years now, so I must have planted it when I was five. Um, and don't laugh, James. Uh, and it's now got a canopy on it that must be four or five metres across. Wow. It is just beautiful. And it's a mass of these little spidery yellow flowers with sort of curly petals. Mm. It's almost like your albuca in another weird way. It's a similar yeah. yellow, actually. Yeah. yeah, I was going to say that. And they are just lovely. They do have a slight scent, but the variance of scent, uh, they vary from variety to variety as to how strong the perfume okay. is. Um, uh, and I've never found it a particularly pervasive perfume, but it's pleasant enough. Uh, but when you see these bare branches with these wonderful spiky spidery yellow or mm. Enjoy. You can even get sort of dark burgundy ones. Mm. And the other interesting thing about them is the autumn colour of the plants is quite good and it's almost invariably in line with the colour of the flower. So if you've got a yellow flowered one, its leaves tend to go bright yellow before mm. they shed. If you've got an orange flowered one, they'll go orange. And if you've got a, a burgundy flowered one, they'll go clarity burgundy colours. Okay. Uh, there's one or two exceptions, but nearly all of them colour in the same sort of way as their flowers are, which I'm not quite sure why that happens. But um, uh, And I just think they're wonderful plants. They've not been all that easy to get the last few years. Um, uh, a lot of the growers have been having trouble grafting them. They generally graft them onto the North American witch hazel, which is the one they get witch hazel oil from. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And for some reason or another, over the last few years, people have been having trouble budding or grafting them. Uh, I got a really good batch of pallida this year from one of the big growers that, that have never had them on the list before. So I don't know whether it's suddenly becoming something that you know the big players are starting to have a go at, uh, or whether it's one of those things that'll be a once-off. I don't know. We'll see, yeah, see yeah. what happens over the next year or two with the witch hazels. Uh, and it might actually depend on how many people bought them from the wholesalers. I mean, I bought a big batch because I knew I desperately wanted them, uh, but I don't know how many they grew and how many other people bought them. Mm. So if they you know, still had stock sitting over at the end of the year, they might think twice about doing it again. Um, but I think they're wonderful plants, the witch hazels. <laughs> so if you've got a spot where you can plant one, uh, it's definitely worth a go. Mm. Um, because they get good autumn foliage, they get good uh, flowers in the winter. And I might add, as they get older, their bark goes a lovely sort of grey-white um, and their form and shape can be lovely. So even before they come into flower with their little brown flower buds on them, they can still look very effective in the garden. I still have people ask me about my pallida, even when it's just a bare stick, what is it? Because it's okay. just got such a nice shape and yeah. form right. to it. Right. So, yes, yeah, so I think the hamamalis are really worthwhile considering as a garden plant. Yeah. And in all but the worst positions, and I pro- I guess in really sandy soils where it would be hard to keep moisture up to them, you might have a, a problem growing them. Um, but in a sheltered part of a garden where they're out of the hot sun of the afternoon, they, they should be growable most most southern Victorian parts. Mm. So, Excellent. Yeah, witch hazels. So I think they're great plants. Brilliant. Um, we're going to go to our first caller. We have Anne in Oak Park. Good morning, Anne. Oh, good morning, listeners and panel. Um, I got some dead pot plants, some conifers. Unfortunately, I lost them mm-hmm. uh, due to them having been left out in the sun when I had to go to hospital on a previous occasion. And I'd like to know, is there any use for half a dozen dead uh, conifers in pots or do I just throw them in the bin or what? Well, you could shred them up and use them for mulch. That's about all I think you could use them for, Anne. Right. Unless you can spray paint them and use them as some sort of weird Christmas tree. Uh, (laughs) I guess that's always a possibility. (laughs) Uh, I'm not sure about a dead tree, you know, heralding Christmas, but, you know, who knows? I've seen worse things. Um, But, yeah, there's really probably no particular use for them, Anne. Uh, Yes, well, they could actually be decorated as many little trees of some sort. Mm-hmm. They're only quite small, actually. They're only about a foot high. Yeah, well, they're probably not even big enough to put decorations on there. Mm-hmm. So I don't think they're going to be much use to anybody, Anne. No, probably not. Now, uh, Lily of the Valley, that's a bowl. Now, where could I buy it? And does it like part? Sun or shade, when do I plant it and fertilise and water it? Well, with Lily of the Valley, it's not strictly a bulb. It's actually a, a rhizome that runs along under the ground. Uh, never buy it in packets off a bulb stand. Uh, why some bulb growers think they can sell Lily of the Valley that mm. way is beyond yes. me. Uh, it just dries out and it's no good. So there's no point in buying it that way. You want to buy it as a pot-grown plant. Um, I sell it at my nursery. I don't know how many other people around have got Lily of the Valley at the moment. It's dormant and now is a good time to plant it, but but if it's pot grown, you can plant it virtually at any time. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so even if you were to come up in November when it's in flower, uh, and I have the white one, I have the pink one, and I've got a yellow striped leafed one with variegated leaves. Um, and if you want to grow lily of the valley, it likes a very leafy soil, so plenty of compost and leaf mould and things. Plenty of light, but not too much direct sunlight. And it does need to be kept constantly moist, even when it's going dormant later in the summer. Uh, so it doesn't want to be in a spot that dries right out. Otherwise, the plants are inclined to desiccate. And as far as feeding is concerned, it's really 
oodles of organic material, a bit of old animal manure, blood and bone, plenty of leaf mould, compost, uh, all those sort of organic-y things is what Lily of the Valley thrives on. And, look, in some people's gardens it becomes a weed. In other people's gardens they can't get the damn thing to grow at all. <laughs> um, so it is one of those plants that... You've got to be philosophical about If you do all the right things and it still doesn't survive for you, that's not unusual. When I was living at Noble Park, uh, I had Lily in the Valley growing actually underneath the house where there was some light growth coming in. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Mm. And that was quite lovely. Mm. Yeah, look, if you've got the right spot in a garden, then it's fairly easy going, but a lot of people struggle with it. Uh, I've had so many people who've tried and tried and tried again with Lily of the Valley and lost it. Oh, lovely plant. Things mm. are yeah, yeah, and there are other forms of it out there. I know uh, the boys at Antique Perennials one year had the double-flowered one for sale, uh, mm. which I missed out on. I should have grabbed some at the time and forgot. Um, and I know there's bigger flowered forms that have come into the country. There's something or another giant. I uh, can't remember the cultivar. So there's, there's a range of different lily of the valleys that have found their way into Australia, um, and they're all pretty. I mean, the classic ordinary white one is gorgeous. It's probably as good as any in some ways, but novelty is, is something that we all yen for, I guess, so variegated ones or pink ones and things can be just as nice. Right. Uh, just one other thing. Where could I buy that deal? Could I get it at Poynton's? You could try. I mean, Poynton's are a good big nursery and they have some interesting plant material. So if they're close enough to you, well, that that would be my first port of call. Um, and, um, you know, if that doesn't work, I mean, I know Andrew at Poynton's quite well. Maybe he'd pick one up for you from me. Uh, I mean, I'm happy enough to do that. So have a chat to them about it and say you've chatted to me. And I mean, Andrew lives only half a K away from my nursery, so we might up at Mount Macedon. At Mount Macedon, Anne? Oh, Mount Macedon. That's quite away from Oak Park, but I I could. (laughs) Possibly. I come into Collingwood every second Sunday, oh, so I, you know, I'm prepared to travel. <laughs> yes, well, Collingwood's not too far from me. Mm. And, uh, yes, talking of perfume flowers, uh, my grandson used to make me perfume. He used to go around the garden and pick all the flowers and soak them in water overnight when he was about six or seven years of age. And then in the morning he'd put the water into jars and say, that's Grandma Anne's perfume. <laughs> so that was the last Charming as long as he hasn't picked all your best flowers. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't do much damage at all because he was sensible. Oh, well, that's good. Okay. Okay then, Anne. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye. That number, if you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155. We've got uh, Stephen Ryan and James Beatty in the studio. We're running through our usual time slot till 9.15, so uh, do give us a call, 94190155. Incidentally, is there any reason why Witch Hazel is called Witch Hazel? Yeah, it's called Witch Hazel, not because it scares away witches. It's not witches. witches. No, it's, it's got to do with... Uh, similarity to. Uh, right. So it's, you could call it a like hazel or okay. something uh, yep. in modern parlance. I'm not quite sure exactly how, the, um, uh, how it translates, but it's to do with it's a false, almost like 
plant. Okay. So which hazel, which elm, there's a few yep. things that have got that name in, uh, in them and it's to do with them being like something else. Okay. Um, it's like if you see something with wart in the name, it doesn't mean that it brings them up. It no, means no, that no. it's a plant. <laughs> you know, so it's an old, uh, old term for plant. So yep. if you've got a lung wart, it's a plant that helps your lungs supposedly. Um, so, yes, if you know what the, the – the actual translation is, it yep. sort of makes some sense. It so, does. Yeah, yep. yeah. So witch hazel is sort of, well, it does have leaves like a hazel leaf. So yep. Fair you know, that's where the name would have come from, I yep. think. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah, great plants. Uh, do we oh, we yes, might as well do another one or two. Yes, we've got time for another one. Um, all right. There's another little yellow flowered number of a deciduous variety that is looking quite gorgeous in my garden at the nursery at the moment, and it's uh, Cornus Mass. Ah. The Cornelian cherry. Right. Um, it doesn't look anything like most people's concept of a dogwood. No, uh, not at all. Cornus. Because mm-hmm. yep. when you think of dogwoods, I think everybody thinks of those big white and pink sort of petal-like That's right. flowers that you get on the North American flowering dogwoods. But the genus is quite large and it has all sorts of weird and strange flowering forms. And Cornus mass is one of the stranger ones in a way. And it gets little tiny yellow flowers and little round button-like um, clusters uh, that sit on the bare branches at this time of the year. So the branches come out in sort of big sort of horizontal layers. Mm-hmm. Um, the trunk is getting all peely bark on it now. It's got to a decent size. Its trunk, I suppose, is in the old measurements about four inches in diameter now. Okay. And the plant must be four or five metres tall. And so in the late winter, it comes out with these little sparkly yellow flowers all over the tree, which look fantastic. It's then followed by a oblong bright red berry which ripens about midsummer uh, hence the name cornelian cherry because mm. they yes. you know, they're not rounded like a cherry but they're much the same color okay. uh, and they're quite edible uh, in ah. fact they say that cornelian cherry Jelly is one of the best jellies you can use to, uh, with gamey meats. Oh, right. Uh, I've eaten them off the tree. They taste quite nice, but they're more seed than they are anything else. So you stick it in your mouth, suck the skin off, and then spit the seed out. Yep. Uh, in my case, then to sow. <laughs> Waste not, want not. Um, <laughs> And it's one of the tougher of the dogwoods, so it's one of the dogwoods that you should be able to grow in you know, average garden conditions around suburban Melbourne without too much trouble. Uh, its foliage in the autumn tends to go quite pretty shades of yellow and apricotty oranges. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and then, of course, in the winter you've got these lovely little yellow flowers on it. There's a nice specimen of it in the botanic gardens here in Melbourne, uh, growing perfectly well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're one of those gardeners that do love to have things that have some sense of edibility about them, uh, I mean, it's tenuous to an extent but it, it is edible um, and it's a really pretty winter flowering small tree it's absolutely gorgeous it must be quite a sight oh full yeah, flight. yeah mine yeah. in the garden at the nursery at the moment it must have thousands of these little yellow mm. clustery flowers all over it at the moment and when the sun catches it with the bare sort of twiggy stems and these little yellow flowers all over mm. it's very very pretty at the moment so mm. and its foliage is quite pleasant in the summer it's classical dogwood shaped leaves yep. uh, so it gives itself away when it's in in foliage uh, and of course later in the season when the berries are on it it's really lovely and for those who like something with lots of bang for their bucks there's a very handsome variegated form of it funnily enough called variegata <laughs> um, and it has very bold white edges around the leaf and okay. when variegata is in fruit with its bright red berries and its silver variegated foliage, uh, of course its foliage is not on it when it's in flower, so it looks like the normal classical form in bloom. Uh, but in the summer when its fruit's on it, it's really quite a dramatic 
combination. Mm. Mm. And uh, I believe some of the larger fruited forms of uh, named clones have found their way into Australia as well. So I don't know that they're commercially available yet particularly. Okay. Uh, but I know um, Don Teesup at Yamina imported a range of, um, of named clones with extra large fruit. Uh, okay. So if anybody was interested in growing them actually for the fruit, uh, that might be worthwhile. I do get quite a few Europeans ask me for it. Because right. it grows right through Europe and they would have yep. used the fruit yep. there for yep. jellies and things. Yep. Uh, so I do get quite a few Europeans asking me for Cornelian cherries. Uh, so, yes, Cornus Mass. Okay. Um, and it is a, a, an underrated and not often seen plant that I think probably deserves a little bit more attention by gardeners because mm. it really is a charming plant. And, and it pays its way. I mean, you've got good flowers, interesting fruit, good autumn foliage, mm-hmm. uh, a nice rugged <laughs> form to it as it ages, so it gets a nice look to the tree when it gets a little older. Uh, it gets quite attractive peely bark. I mean, it's got a lot going for it, and yet people don't think about it. And, of course, if people come in looking for a dogwood, that's the last thing in the world they're looking for. That's right. Because they're thinking about the big flowering yes. numbers. Yes. Uh, and uh, so when you show them this thing, they go, oh, that wasn't what I was expecting. So... <laughs> It's one of those plants that does tend to fall between stools, and it actually does lead me to the next one, if we can quickly do this. Certainly. In the same way, uh, Jasminum nudiflorum doesn't sort of hit people as a garden plant because if they want a jasmine, they're normally looking for a smelly climber, uh, and this is more a sprawling shrub that flowers in the winter. Uh, and uh, so if you're looking for a jasmine, this isn't what you'd be looking for, uh, and so it's one of those plants that doesn't often... Uh, grab people's attention but it's a fabulous winter flowering plant Uh, it flowers on bare stems in the winter it never has a lot of foliage actually even in the summer Uh, and it's a sort of an archy plant so it's ideal for espalier work Um, it looks fantastic thrown up through the lower limbs of a large tree and Mm. then grown sort of as a cascading thing Mm. Uh, it also looks fabulous hanging over banks and things so if you had a big clay bank or something that you wanted to cover you could allow jasminum nudiflorum to sort of cascade over that Uh, and it will grow in shade sun drought tolerant um, about the only thing that's likely to kill it is a swamp i reckon right (laughs) so it's as tough as no perfume but really bright golden yellow flowers and it flowers all winter Mm. so this has had flowers on it since probably beginning of may and I'll right. still have flowers on it probably right up till October. That's good value. That's very good value. I think great value. Yeah. But it's really hard to sell because it makes a scruffy-looking thing in a pot. You just have these sort of few basically naked stems that hang in all different directions. And it's very hard to convince somebody that that will make a nice plant <laughs> in their garden. Uh, so it's, again, one of those things that will probably never show up much in the nursery trade because you've got to be an exceedingly good salesman to get rid of one. <laughs> but it's a good plant. Yep, yep. Okay, let's move on and go to uh, Bronwyn, who's in Roeville. Good morning, Bronwyn. Hi, Pam, Stephen and James. Um, I've got a couple of questions. First one is I've, I've got a Maria. Um, I think it's paniculata, the one with the creamy white flowers and the, the beautiful scent. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm wanting to move it because I've got a, a little hedge of three and the one in the middle is uh, one too many. Is that too cold to move it at the moment? I'd be tempted not to touch it at the moment, I have to mm. say, because Maria is a sort of subtropical to it tropical is. plant. What do you think, James? It's not something I grow because you know, yeah. it's too cold for Macedon. I mean, given where it's from, I'd, I'd probably wait until spring when the ground warms up a bit more. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. You're going to run the risk that it's going it's to shock it. It's not going to be very happy. Um, yeah. I mean, they are pretty tough, but, yeah, look, I would, I, would, I would definitely exercise a bit of caution and maybe wait until it warms up a bit, I think. Yep, that's no worries. Um, the second one is I've got a, a, a peach that my sister-in-law gave me. It's quite unusual. It's um, she, it's a black peach. Mm. Um, 
and it got planted in the wrong position and I, I need to move it. It's in, it's in shade. It's just not doing any good. But it's got to about six foot tall. Is that? Can I prune that back um, reasonably hard and move it now if I get yeah, it? Yeah. yeah. That's what the bare-rooted tree growers do. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so Flemings and all those big tree yep. growers, they're growing stuff up to about the six-foot mark. Okay. Digging yep. it up and selling it to people. Yep, get the mattock out, okay. Yeah, well, I don't know about a mattock, but I'd get a nice sharp <laughs> spade out because uh, you want to cut through the roots neatly yes. uh, and obviously try and move a few roots with the tree so yep. don't cut too close into the trunk. Um, try and get a decent amount of roots out. Don't take the dirt with it. No. Uh, just loose root it and then replant it as you would a loose rooted tree that you might buy. Oh, that's great. Yep, mm. okay, thank you. And the last one is I've, I've got a plant that's... Um, it's a bit of a family heirloom. My grandparents had it's a ponytail. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah, they can become heirlooms. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> well, um, it's got to be 40 years old at least, and it's been in the same pot for as long as I've known it. Mm. But I notice the pot's cracked. Yeah. Now, um, I'll need to replant it, but I, it, it's fairly pot bound. So, should I just put, just get the a slightly larger size pot and just um, a small amount of you know new potting mix around the edges? Do you think? Because it's really um, hard in there, you know. Yeah, look, I, I wouldn't tamper with the roots much because, no. I mean, it's as tough as. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, yeah, I just smash that pot off. Yep. Um, and I wouldn't even – I don't think I'd even fiddle with the roots much. With modern no. potting mixes, they're, they're really quite um, – uh, open and porous and, yep. and the roots will move out into it. Um, I, I might crumble up the bottom of the root ball a little bit uh-huh. uh, and I'd go up, you know, a good two or three inches in diameter bigger than what you've actually got now. Yes. And I think I'd wait till the spring too with that. Mm, yeah, oh, I would okay. as well, definitely. Yeah, yeah because, it, again, it's, it's from warmer, more tropical climes, so I think I would leave it until the weather starts to warm up before I fiddled with it too. Oh, okay. I might try and pack something into there to stop it Oh, look, I wouldn't out. worry about the fact that it's, that it's cracking its pot. I mean, as oh, long okay. as it gets a little bit of water every so often, um, it'll cope until you're ready to reap to oh, repot okay. it, so I wouldn't even bother about that. Oh, no worries. And should I use a native potting mix for that one? No, just use an ordinary just general now. potting mix, yep. I would have thought. Yep. Yeah. Okay. That's fantastic. Thanks, everyone. Okay. That's a pleasure. Okay. Thank Bye. you. Bye. It's funny how you end up with family looms. I've got my grandmother's Hoya, which is something I'm not actually passionate about. I'm not, <laughs> I find Hoyas sort of a bit cloying, and, and, and there's something almost flesh-like about their flowers, which puts me off a bit. And they normally end up as dusty, cobwebby, they do. You know, sort of unstuffed yes. mattresses on mm. people's front verandas. <laughs> so I've spent hours espaliering it on wires on the front veranda to at least give it some sort of form. Uh, and, and I feel obliged because uh, it was my grandmother's, and she's been – gone. God, when did my grandmother die? must have been 20, 25 years ago. Yep. Uh, and I've had this thing ever since. In fact, she gave it to me before she passed away. So she knew I had it and I had to look after it. So I can't even <laughs> pretend that I took it on after and therefore I could get rid of it. Um, and yeah, it's still sitting on the front veranda getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, it started flowering again because I had to cut it back at one stage because we were doing renovations and I had to get it down and it all snapped and broke and what have you. So it's only just starting to set set flowers again. And I'm not sure that I'm actually all that happy about that. But, (laughs) (laughs) uh, but yeah, so family emloom plants can be something of a trial sometimes because you feel really obliged to look after them, even if they're not something you really like. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Um, Next up, we have Jordan, who's in Baronia. Good morning, Jordan. Yeah, how are you going? We're well. Um, I'm just bringing up to ask about the lily of the valley. Um, the scientific name for it? Uh, it's Convalaria majalis. Ah, cool. I thought you were trying to 
um, to get people to plant the pampas lily of the valley, which is quite a bad weed out my way. Yeah, no, we're talking about the official lily of the valley. Common names can yeah. be, in fact, uh, somewhat yeah, uh, confusing to people, as you've just worked out for yourself, actually. <laughs> um, uh, but, yes, the classical lily of the valley is a nice little scented perennial, which in some people's gardens can become thuggish. I mean, if it's really happy, it can run around a fair bit. Mm. Uh, but nonetheless, it's, I don't think it's considered weedy anywhere. Yeah, no, no, I haven't heard of that one. I was just worried about the pampas one. Yeah. No, no, it's a completely different plant. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Yes, yes. Not even even vaguely related. Um, (laughs) But that is the fun of common names, of course, because, yeah, they they can encompass all sorts of different plants that have no physical relationship with each other. Yeah, well, we got Mount Nash up here, and they don't look anything like an ash. <laughs> no, and they don't actually look anything like the Mount Nash of Europe, which is actually a rowan, Sorbus. Yeah. Sorbus orcuparia is known as Mount Nash in, in Europe, and quite obviously it's not related to eucalyptus regnans. Um, so it's a completely <laughs> different type of plant. So, yes, tread carefully when using common names. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Okay, good on Thank you, Jordan. Bye. A listener has just wanted to know if the gardening show got to their fundraising goal. No, we haven't as yet. Oh, yes, that's that's um, something we should discuss, I guess. Yes, well, we still do have plenty of leftover product. We still do have books and things. Mm. Um, And it's wonderful that that some of our listeners are still... um, trying to to maybe get a bit of product and, and add a bit more to our tally because uh, the station really do need us to reach our, our full total, which was 13500 Now I know a lot of money. But, it's you know. a lot of money, mm. but, of course, it takes a lot of money to run a, a radio yeah, station for does. 12 months. Mm. So um, so anyone who would like to, uh, particularly if, if you don't know what you'd like and you don't know what we've got left over, if you give a, a call to the station during office hours, during the week, mm. Um, one of the staff members can run you through some of the items we've still got left. You could probably pop in, couldn't you, uh, during the week? Yes, well, if you live yeah. anywhere near yeah, um, pop Collingwood. Yeah, uh, come in and introduce yourselves. Uh, I'm sure that the staff members here will show you all the product and take money from you if Absolutely. you have to part with it. Absolutely. Why not? Have a browse through all the books that are yeah. left over and, and yeah. yes, go into the courtyard, have a look at the product. Yeah, uh, grab load a few up the things. boot. <laughs> and, of course, everything everything that we have for sale um, is all reduced compared to the standard price. Yeah. So you, you're getting a real bargain at the same time. Yeah, so, and helping us. Keep and us totally here. helping us. So, um, yes, so thank you to that person who rang in and uh, made that inquiry. Yeah. Of course, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. We're on every Sunday morning from uh, 7.30, run, running through until 9.15. This morning, as I mentioned, we have Stephen Ryan and James Beatty in the studio. So if you'd like to phone in and make a comment or ask a gardening question, we'd love to hear from you. That number is 94190155. That's 9419. Zero one double five. Stephen, have you got anything else there? Oh yes. yes. Oh good. <laughs> Far be it from me to run out of things to talk about. Um, and if, in fact, I could probably make up some plants we haven't got in the studio, and nobody'd know we weren't we weren't actually looking at them. Um, but I love catkins. Yes, and and winter is the time of catkins. Yes. Um, uh, I mean, the garriers are in flower at the moment. Mm. The silk tassel trees. Uh, I've got one of the South American ulnuses, the um, ulnus cuminata, which has tassels. 
about five or six inches long oh, in the old fantastic. measurements that's coming out into tassel at the moment in the garden at home. Um, but this is one of those plants that's been around for years and, and it's one of those things people either love or they loathe. Um, and it's the contorted or crazy filbert. So it's actually a hazelnut again. Uh, right. We were talking about which hazels before. Uh, but this is a true hazel. Uh, and its branches and stems curl and twist in all sorts of weird directions. So again, it's sort of got a spiralacy. <laughs> We've got a bit of a theme, theme going yeah, on. I don't know how this happened. I didn't talk to James beforehand. There was no collusion going on here. Um, but the contorted filbert is a fun plant because you get these wonderful curly, twisty stems. So in the winter when it's bare, the stems look fantastic. And then they get, they're just starting to open now, but they become sort of golden cat- catkins that hang down in these twisted stems. Um, it's a slowish growing shrub but can eventually grow to a reasonable size. I've got one in the nursery that my mum actually bought for me for my 18th birthday, if I remember rightly. Oh, there you go. So it's only tiny still. Uh, it's now about four metres tall and about three metres through. Um, and it actually got burnt virtually to ground level by the Ash Wednesday bushfires oh. in 83. So it's all regenerated growth since that time. Uh, and um, it's a fabulous winter plant. And if you can plant it against a blank wall, which is, I think, the best way to use it, because if you plant it against a, a leafy background, it tends to disappear you a lose bit. It. Yep. Uh, but if you can, you know, if you had it, say, in a big wooden barrel or something like that against a blank wall, yep. uh, the bare tracery stems, and in fact, the shadow of the bare tracery stems on the wall, makes for interesting patterns and things in the garden. Mm. But there's two things that people need to know about contorted or crazy filberts before they go out and buy one. Uh, first is that you tend to buy them in the winter when they look like this. And when the leaves come out in the spring, they're quite large, they're hazelnut leaves, but the leaves also curl and twist. So I regularly get people who come in and they want to know what's they wrong with their filbert. They think something's wrong, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and there ain't anything wrong with their filbert. This is normal behaviour for that particular plant. And, in fact, if anybody's ever grown the contorted willow, it does the same thing. Its leaves curl. Mm. Yes. Um, so they don't have a natural leaf shape. So that's the first thing you need to know because you've likely bought it in the winter. I try and remember to tell everybody who buys one that when its leaves come out, they'll be twisted and bent as well. And the other thing you need to be aware of is that a lot of the plants of this that are being grown around in the trade have been budded or grafted onto, onto classical hazelnut because uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of plants are budded or grafted, and in, in many cases that's not a problem. Uh, but in the case of this, it is a problem, and you should never buy a budded or grafted one. Uh, you should always buy one on its own roots. And the reason being that normal hazels sucker. Right. They make a thicket. Yep. So you will spend the rest of your life, as I am with mine, because when mum bought me mine, there weren't any trees available on their own roots and we didn't know about the problems with them. And every year I have to get underneath it and chip out all of the upright oh. hazel suckers from underneath my filbert, even after all these years. It's never going to stop. It should be called drive your crazy filbert. Uh, yes, yes. Oh, yes. Okay. So if it's grafted, don't go there. You're right, James. Very, very good <laughs> use of words there. Um, so get one on its own roots. Demand one on its own roots. Um, and if you do that, it's fine. You don't have any problems with anything that suckers from below is going to be the contorted filbert anyway. Uh, and so all is well mm. so on its own roots and remember that the leaves twist and curl as well and if you've got both those things in your head again you wouldn't plant it somewhere where it's going to get baked dry hot northerly winds all that stuff it will burn probably yep. won't kill it but it'll burn the foliage okay. um, and so a slightly sheltered site is probably the best for it um, and like all of the hazelnutty things uh, reasonably moisture retentive soil uh, seems to work best uh, and I just think they're, they're, they're one of those plants that make you smile mm. so, Definitely. and I just wish we could get the burgundy leafed form of it in Australia I've seen it in gardens in France mm. and the burgundy one which the name of which I can't remember off the top of my head is outrageous but being in the nut family I don't think we'd even get it through quarantine 
now. Mm, not sure. Yeah, they're getting harder and harder on that sort of thing. And anything that's related to something that we actually have a, a crop in Australia of is extra hard to get in. So my gut feeling is that the purple leaf filbert would be pretty hard to import, I would imagine. Mm. Um, I'm not quite sure where you start to get one anyway. Uh, but, yeah, so it's a really interesting plant that people should have a crack at, I reckon. Absolutely. Torted filbert. Yep, yep. Let's go next to uh, Val, who's out in Carnegie. Good morning, Val. Hi, Panel. Good morning, and thanks for being there. Now, I've got a question about my tulips. I've been growing tulips in an old wheelbarrow each year. But this year, they seem to be rather early. They're already out. But the other, which is lovely, but the problem or the question that I have is that they seem to be rather tall and lanky, and so they are flopping over. Mm -hmm. It's just the season. There's not a lot you can do about it. And what about the flopping over? Well, unless you're going to go out there with little tiny fine bamboo canes uh, and and stranger things have been done, I might add, uh, there's really not much you can do about it. I think because we didn't get much autumn frost yeah. and our winter came in rather late, uh, I think that they actually started early. Yeah. Um, and... Um, of course, they're coming out early, which means that they're not coming out with terribly much sun and things as they would normally get a little later in the spring. So it's elongating them. Yes. And I don't think there's anything you can do about it, Val, okay. other than going out with little fine stakes. Ah. Uh, and then you'd have to be really careful you don't shove them through the bowl. That's fine. <laughs> uh, but I, I do know of a, a garden, or I, I, I heard of a garden, I don't know where it is exactly, uh, that was opening for the Australian Open Garden Scheme one year. And um, their, their big feature was going to be their tulips. And they were a bit worried the tulips were going to be over by their opening because it's really hard to judge when tulips are going to flower from yeah. season to season. And they went round and put in a elastic band around every flower and apparently they had hundreds of them and then the morning of the opening they went round and took the elastic bands off every single tulip oh my goodness so it depends on how obsessive you are as to what you can do in your garden no i just wondered whether i i should have planted them deeper no no No, the deepness wouldn't make any difference to how elongated the flower stems are yeah and just another small question but i don't have the detail can um, natives, it's not a grevillea, it's not one of those usual ones, but sort of a mounding, it's a lovely shrub, and it's a shrub, not a small tree, but can I um, take cuttings and, you know, stuff off other ones? It's a little hard to tell, isn't it? Depends what it is. <laughs> yeah, it depends what it is. Is it flowering at the yeah. moment? Maybe I'll take it to the nursery and ask them to identify it. Look, I think you need to have the name of something. I mean, a lot of things are propagatable. Um, I think far more things can be grown from cuttings than the average home gardener realises. So certainly you've got very little to lose to have a crack at it. But there are certain plants that really just have to be raised from seed or or grown from other techniques like budding, grafting, whatever. Uh, So you could be throwing your time away, but you're not really throwing any money away. Mm. No. I mean, I like having a go. Yeah, well, exactly. exactly. And, that, and I would be quite happy to do that, Val. I mean, I do that every year in my nursery. I have a go at something yeah. that I haven't propagated before. Yeah. Uh, and if it works, that's fantastic. I've got some plants to sell. If it doesn't work, I've learnt something. Exactly. So, you know, so I never get myself too irate about things yeah. if it doesn't happen, although yeah. obviously from my perspective I have a commercial imperative I'm trying to deal with. Um, but, you know, it's it's worth having a crack. But without knowing what it is, I wouldn't say yeah. whether it's strikeable or not. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of natives are, but quite a number aren't. So, Yeah, okay. And thank you very, very much. That's a pleasure. Cheers, Val. Bye. Bye.
And uh, goodness me, we have Gwen in. Very good morning, Gwen. Good morning, Pam. Good morning. Oh, everyone. it's that Gwen. It's that Gwen. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Gwen. Hello, Stephen. Hi, James. Morning. Um, yeah, look, at the moment, I'm just standing looking outside my window, and the thing that's sort of looking fantastic is a lemon tree. I think it's the variety called Lots of Lemons, which we've got in a big pot here, and it just made me think what a wonderful year it's been for citrus mm. all around Melbourne. Yes. Actually, it's really been an interesting citrus year because, uh, as people may know that have been listening to us for a while, I've planted citrus at Macedon, which is supposed to be a bit silly. Uh, and I've been doing well with my Tahitian lime. I get plenty of leaves off my kaffir lime. Uh, my grapefruit has started fruiting quite well. My tangelo fruits really well. Mm. But my mandarin's always been really small and dry. Uh-huh. This year it is loaded in fruit, still small, but perfectly edible. Mm. Yeah. I don't even know what made me try one because I'd given up on it because it, it's been years in the ground. I mean, it's got to be 10 years old. And I don't know what made me have another crack at one. And it was quite edible. So we're using our own mandarins at Macedon as well. I mean, yeah. they're fiddly because <laughs> they're about <laughs> half normal size, but they're quite tasty. Well, yeah. and, and my finger limes have done particularly well again yeah. this year too. Actually, I was in um, one of the big two uh, supermarkets the other day and saw a, a like you know a seg- segment on the shelf labelled um, kumquats, and I'm sure it was the sunrise finger lime. I sort of thought, oh, you know, I won't sort of go and tell them this, but they've been, we've got a tree with the yellow finger lime cultivar on, another one with the red one. Yeah. Yes. And they've just got dozens and dozens and dozens of fruit on it. And yes. Uh, when you go out to groups or whatever, people come along and say, look, would you like some of these? <laughs> I know a lady came the other day with a box of Maya lemons. Yeah, yeah, I had somebody arrive with some Lisbons the other day, which is quite nice to have. Yeah, the other thing I was going to say, a friend came and brought along some uh, lime quat. I don't know if you're familiar with lime quats, but um, she's brought them a couple of years it's a small fruit and supposedly um, a cross between lime and a kumquat, mm. but particularly high in pectin. So it's very good for making marmalade. And if you you know want some other taste to go with the limey taste, well, you add it to an orange marmalade or whatever. But um, a great year for citrus. But that wasn't why I rag, actually. Well, the other thing I'm looking at in, in the garden here is a native mule and beckia, sometimes called what maidenhair climber or something. But, you know, used a lot in topiary work and informal hedging and whatever and provided you own a pair of secateurs. Um, it's, a, it's a good plant, but not very widely cultivated. So there's a leery for you, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. Well, actually, some of the shrubby Muhlenbeckias are quite handsome. I'm not so familiar with our native ones, but yeah. there's a very handsome New Zealand one, uh-huh. uh, uh which grows into a twiggy sort of... Well, they call it devericated, but, you know, zigzaggy branched plants uh, and it has very few leaves on it. So the zigzaggy branches are really quite obvious and it makes a wonderful contrast plant. Oh, yeah. It's good to own a pair of secateurs if you've got a mule and becker. Yeah. Not that it's rampant or anything. It just... You should be in control as the gardener. Yeah, well, and I think we should take control as gardeners. A lot of people are inclined to get too mushy about plants and they they won't prune uh, and then they end up, you know, sort of strangling the gas man and everything else goes wrong. Uh, So a little control in the garden I think is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. 
thing I was going to mention is that uh, today is the second day of the winter plant sale down at the Cranbourne Botanic Garden. So oh, we'll right. be up there soon. The sky above here at the moment is a glorious light blue. Um, it's a fine day down there for most of your stay. It hailed very early in the morning before the show was open. But then, you know, it was pretty good for the rest of the day. It'll be cool, so everybody needs to rug up but there's lots of plants for sale down there. And, um, oh, Mary Ann's put out a table at half price today, mm. I think. Oh, fantastic. Um, so you can buy plants from, you know, $3 upwards. And um, so if people are wondering what will I do today, rug up against the wind, but um, pop down to Cranbourne and we'll be down there and there's other three CR folks will be down there too. And um, it's always nice to catch up with listeners and presenters. Fantastic. Okay. okay, excellent. Have fun, whatever you're doing. Okay, thanks, <laughs> See you Green. Bye. Bye. <clears throat> ah, dear, that number, if you'd like to join us this morning, as I mentioned, we are running through until 9.15. We'd love to hear from you, 94190155, to speak to the team on air. What else have we got, Steve? Well, I've only, dare I say, I've only got one more plant that I've actually bought in. But, you know, as I That's said, fine. we can always lie later and I can pretend I've got something. I'm happy to do that. Um, this is a plant that I would normally consider to be spring flowering. So it is one of those things that's flowering a little out of sync mm-hmm. this year. And it's a plant that I saw growing in the wilds in Chile when I was there a few years ago. Just name dropping, as I do. Uh, and it's a thing called Drimus Eye, And it's related to our native pepper bush. Okay. And in fact, they used to both be in the same genus, but now our native pe- pepper bush has been put into Tasmania yep. as opposed to Drimus. Um, the leaves look spot on, just a much larger version. Yeah, it is. Yes. It's like it's yes. like one on steroids. Mm. Um, and it gets clusters of very pretty little white flowers, normally in early spring, but it is flowering in sort of midwinter this year. Um, it's a tree. It will grow up to easily five or six metres tall, uh, fairly upright in form, so it could be quite useful along boundary lines and things where you don't want to annoy your neighbours too much, uh, but you still want some screening. Uh, But being southern Chilean, it does like an acidy, reasonably moist soil. Uh, It doesn't like to dry out completely. But I've had people grow it in quite odd areas. I mean, I had a a client for years down in Ocean Grove that had a beautiful one. Mm. They planted down the side of their house where there was sort of only a smallish gap between them and the neighbours. And they planted a drimus in that, and it did perfectly well at Ocean Grove. Mm. So... But it's one of those plants that won't leave you in any indecision, and I quite like that about a plant. I mean, I hate plants that sulk on for years and you can never quite bring yourself to pull them out. So you've got this weird, half-dead, yellow (laughs) thing that never grows and flowers, uh, but it doesn't quite die. Mm. Drimus won't leave you like that. It will either grow and flourish and take off like a rocket, or it'll die overnight. So there's no indecision involved in this <laughs> okay. plant. So, um, uh, yeah, so it will fade out very quickly if it's not happy where you put it. Um, it's got an interesting history because it's named after Captain Winter, who, in fact, was going around the South American coast uh, and discovered the plant. And apparently the bark was used as a scurvy uh, cure. Oh. So I like oranges better. <laughs> <laughs> Chew on a bit. Yeah, nice. yes, uh, yeah. It, it is bitter, like the the uh, like the Tasmania is. Right. Um, uh, so why they thought of using this, I have no idea. I, I I can't imagine that the local South American Indians suffered from scurvy and said to these people, "Here, try <laughs> some of this." I'm not quite sure how this was worked out, but apparently it is a cure for scurvy. 
So that makes it seriously useful in most people's gardens today. Yes, yes. Uh, very much so. But it's a lovely shrub. I love it. And it's and it's ivory white flowers are lovely. This one I picked was the lowest one, so it's the easiest one to grab. But it, the heads can be quite a bit bigger. I'd say they could get to, you know, sort of 15 to 20 centimetres across in some mm. cases on really vigorous branches. And it flowers for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, there must be perfumed clones of it out there, which I've never met, because all the English books talk about the scent of Drimus, right. and yet I've never been able to pick up any perfume from mine at all, okay. or anybody else's drimus that I've smelt when I've been travelling either here or in Chile. Okay. Uh, I've never picked up a perfume, so I don't mm. quite know how that's come about and whether it's not one of those myths that has been rewritten by every author who doesn't really know the plant terribly well sure. uh, when they've written the next book about it. Right. Um, but it is a very pretty plant. Um, and I'm assuming, like Tasmania, you could probably use it as a con- condiment. Mm. So uh, so I think the Drimus winteri is a lovely, lovely plant. Uh, again, something that's not commonly available. Uh, I think I've got one to sell at the moment at the nursery, but I must put in a batch of cuttings again this year. Uh, I don't find it particularly hard to strike, so it's and it's quick growing. In fact, if anything, its big problem is that it's actually a little too fast growing when it's young, and it will very quickly pot-bound itself and start to look a bit scruffy, and therefore people don't want to buy it. Uh, so it's hard to keep it in good nick in a pot. Uh, for any length of time. So you Mm. need to clear your stock fairly quickly and start another batch. Um, But it's a very pretty plant, and uh, I would certainly recommend people come and have a look at mine in the garden at the nursery if they get a chance because it really is starting to look lovely at the moment. Mm. Uh, And it's one of those evergreen foliages that's not completely black-green like Mm. camellias and a lot of those other things. So it's got a little bit more sort of a lively green about it too as an evergreen. So Drimus winteri, uh, and I have to say I was, just had a batch of Tasmanias come in from Tasmania. Um, uh, I bought some just last week from a grower over there that's got the little dwarf alpine form, and it's got leaves about a, a fraction of the length of the normal Tasmania. Okay. Uh, and they're supposed to be female plants, so uh, if I know I've got female ones, then all I need to do is get some male ones as well, and then I can get the pepper berries as yep. well as the have the pepper foliage. Mm. And I reckon this little dwarf small-leafed one's going to be a fantastic tub specimen. Mm. Really pretty little shrub with those lovely red petioles, the leaf stems. Um, uh, even if you never flowered it and fruited it, uh, its foliage looks so pretty. So uh, look out for it. Yeah, so yes, the, the dwarf alpine form of Tasmania, I think, has got some real serious value as a mm. garden plant. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, if you're on a diet, you know, it's, it's small. <laughs> so it's sort of the Jenny Craig of pepperberries. <laughs> so, yeah, lovely little shrub. Anyhow, that was diverging into something else. Okay, uh, let's go next to Mike, who's out in Dingley. Good morning, Mike. G'day, folks. That, that, thanks for your uh, program yet again. Um, Yes, I've got uh, a tiny, it's not large, it's probably about 20 square metre um, buffalo, Matilda buffalo lawn, and it was going fine uh, the last three years or more. I've, it's been infested with, uh, speaking as an electrician, uh, chickweed uh, type of thing. It's got uh, a long, thin, reasonably strong stem, and I've been hand-weeding it for the last three years, through the winter, but this year everything's growing like mad, and yep. this weed has totally taken over my rather pathetic-looking buffalo lawn now. Mm. Uh, I went to a local nursery; they sold me um, weed and feed, supposedly buffalo-friendly. Uh, well, later on, after I used it, I found that it was about 18 months old. The bag. Uh, 
but there's little or no effect. Um, any ideas, please? Chickweed is one of the toughest things once yeah. it gets if established. If it is actually a proper chickweed, yeah. it's going to—I uh, mean—it's going to be really difficult to get rid mm. of. Um, I'm surprised the weed and feed hasn't had an impact. I mean, it's not one of those products I personally like because uh, they worry me a bit. Uh, I had a client who killed lots of trees and shrubs using weed and feed, uh, including a 40-year-old lemon tree, mm. uh, because of course it. it can wash through the soil mm. yes. and so you do have to be careful using those products if you're going to use them at all um i look i hate to say this but if it were mine i would be just continually hand weeding yeah, it i would feed I your would buffalo too. lawn madly in the spring and make it as thick and lush as you possibly can during the summer months um and i can't see any real way of getting around other than than hand weeding at least it's not uh, acreage you're working with no 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 it, it, it's small enough i mean it's but Really, I'm a, being a bit pathetic, but I'm yeah. Not. Well, I would never have said it that way, Mike. But now that you've actually mentioned it, <laughs> I'm getting old and decrepit. Yeah. Me? Well, look at it as exercise. You're saving, you know, going oh, to a gym yeah. and yeah. Things. But I've been sitting out. Well, not not this year, but uh, the, the last two or three years, I've been sitting out out in the freezing cold. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Look. Yeah. Uh, look. I I can't think of. There, there's not certainly other than those sort of selective weed things. Yeah. There's really not much else you can do other than physical removal yeah i agree okay Mm. good on you yeah sorry sorry i haven't got the magic wand (laughs) (laughs) thanks a lot okay Uh, bye 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 of course, he could eat his chickweed as he's going, I suppose. It's very fashionable. <laughs> yes, yes, one of those things. Throw it into your salads. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've tried it. I still can't quite bring myself to think that it's a, a proper edible plant, no, really. No, uh, I, I, you know, I mean, I don't mind foraging, but let's not get completely carried away here. <laughs> and I'm sure you can overdo chickweed in any salad. Uh, yeah, I don't think <laughs> I've got a heap of it in the garden at the moment. Actually, I looked at it the other day and I thought, Nah, I'm not going to eat through you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Rhonda has rung in, uh, wanting to know how to care for a hedgehog lily, a Masonia, um, after it's finished flowering. Does she let it dry out over summer or what? Oh, yes. It's like the albuca. It's mm. a South African bulb, uh, and they like a good dry dormancy. Mm. So once the leaves start to yellow cut out the watering immediately and just don't put water on it again until the cool weather sets in. So I, I couldn't grow Masonias at Macedon. It's too cold up there for them because they're winter growing and the frost would just knock them out. Uh, but they're certainly growable in Melbourne, but you do need to keep them dry for the summer. So they're probably best kept in pots than out in the ground because, you know, even where we do get dry summers down here, we occasionally get a wet one. And so if you've got a wet summer, it would probably rot them out. Mm. Um, and, yes, keep them dead dry through the summer. So like James, I'd put it underneath the eaves or in the shed or somewhere when it's dormant and then don't forget to take it out again. <laughs> it's always the issue with those things is to remember to deal with them when they need to come out again. I always tend to put them in the house and just have pots of nothing sitting all over the house. and then As a sort of minimalist decorative yeah. item. And then you think, oh, well, I just time to put that outside. It's, yeah. it's a good way not to forget, I think, and, and it's good and conversation you don't find these well. more or less... Empty-looking pots somehow <laughs> confronting Depressing. as, a, well, not yeah, as, as no. a feature in the house. So it's more of a sign of new life to come, you know. Oh, it's I like see. A, oh, okay. I'm glad to see you've got such a positive attitude. <laughs> uh, dear. Oh, dear. Yeah, it really does depend on how you look at these things. Well, I suppose it does, and I guess if the pot is decorative enough, maybe in its own right it stands up as an ornament. A little bit of pot of gravel, you know. Yes, it's yeah, nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can get coloured. Gravel? Or you could use some of those glass beads or something instead. Let's you not know. get carried away. Yes. <laughs>
<laughs> okay. On that note, we might go to Julie, who's in Crib Point. Good morning, Julie. Oh, good morning. I'm just, um, I'm after, it's, it's an edible nasturtium, and I've had so much trouble trying to find this plant. It's called Meshua, and the botanical name is Tropiolum tuberosum. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know who's selling that at the moment. It's the sort of thing that you'd get through maybe New Gippsland Seed Farm, maybe Diggers. Yeah, uh, maybe. From memory, that. I think the Lost Seed was selling it as oh, well yes, a couple Lost of years ago. Oh, yes, yes, they could. Oh. Yes, that could be another one. Um, and it's one, it's going to be one of those sort of uh, permaculture, self-sufficiency type growers yeah. mm. who's going yeah. to have it. Mm. Yes. Um, uh, I had it years ago and, and eventually lost it. I found that oh. the cabbage white butterflies absolutely adored the foliage of yeah, it. Yeah, I did as well. Oh, yeah. I tried to grow it last year in my garden yeah. and um, – it, it came up and it, it leafed out pretty well, and I was looking forward to the flowers because the flowers on it are so yeah. absolutely I might gorgeous. add, I need a recipe yeah. for it too because I remember when I had quantity of it, I decided I would try it, yep. and I wasn't sure how to cook it. Right. And I don't quite know what made me do it, but I whacked it in a microwave dish and put it in the microwave for 30 seconds with just a little bit of water in it mm-hmm. to see what would happen. And the water turned... L- a, a toxic shade of purple, huh. and oh. they tasted like sludge. <laughs> so perhaps don't microwave them. Yeah, either. so there must be another way of cooking it. Although I have to say I have the same issue with the uh, oxalis tubers, the um, the ochre or New Zealand yam. I find them tasteless and boring no matter which way I've cooked yeah. them. Yes, uh, they are. And, and I thought, well, why am I bothering? You know, mm. I can co- I can eat potatoes, which are flavoursome, or I can, yeah. you know, I have something else that I really like the flavour of. So I haven't bothered with the oxalis tubers either the last couple of years. There's still a bit of it growing in the veggie garden, but I don't even bother lifting no, them now. No, I, I got rid of mine years ago yeah. because, like you, I just I have had people say how yummy they are. I don't you know, think especially they are. New Zealanders, but maybe yeah. they just don't get proper food. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But I, I, I was just thinking. Um, I wonder if you could use the nasturtium leaves in a pesto. Be worth a try. You can, you can pickle the the seeds uh, like capers. Oh yeah. yes, yes, yeah. yes. But um, yeah, just this this nasturtium. Um, I might add, if you can get a good form of it, it's actually quite a pretty flower. It is gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's quite a nice little thing, and you could run it up a sort of a, a pyramid in the garden or mm. something like that, and, and use it as a, a nice feature plant. But the tubers are not hugely big, so you would need quite a few to make a meal. Mm. Uh, and as I said, I haven't found out how to cook them. <laughs> and mine disappeared on me eventually, and I've just stuck with the more ornamental perennial ones since. Um, but uh, I love, Look, I love the foliage on tuberosum as well. Yeah. If it's an ornamental plant, I mean, I, that's what I was growing last year, um, and I was really disappointed when it just got attacked by cabbage whitefly and disappeared. So, yeah. Um, yeah, mine did that, and I think snails and slugs will have a go at it mm. at ground level. Um, so it is a plant at risk, so you'd have to you know, keep an eye on it all the time once you got it. Yeah. But it certainly, when um, I had it doing well, it produced masses of tubers and mm-hmm. that's why I ended up with spare at one stage because I was actually growing it and selling it as an ornamental mm-hmm. uh, and I had all these spare tubers and I thought oh well it's edible I'll have a crack at this and see you know and and those days it was probably not something to do that you would google regularly so I just decided I would experiment <laughs> yeah but now I'd probably go on to Mr Google and say recipe for <laughs> oxalis tuberosa and see what came up yep yep there's been a suggestion too that green harvest in Queensland. That's might also another one. Have yes, I'd forgotten oh, okay. about green harvest. They yes. they could be a very possible source. Yes, and um, they do mail order. Oh, look them up. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah they do mail order. I've had some stuff down from them, most of which hasn't done terribly well because most of it was too cold sensitive for me that uh, that I got from them. But uh, it was lovely to have a crack. There was some Peruvian thing I got from them at one stage. I was having a go at that was an edible something, and I can't remember what it was called now. Uh, but it didn't sort of cope well once it moved down here. Mm. Uh, and I wonder whether Aww. even somebody like Otway Herbs or somewhere like that might be yes. worth contacting. Yes. Judy Forrest okay, at Otway Herbs. Yes, might. I'm sure she might have it. Yeah. So there's a few oh, ideas for you wonderful. anyway. Okay, well, thank you so much. Okay, That's a pleasure, Julie. Julie. Bye. Okay, thank you. Bye. Yeah, we'll probably get a whole pile of people now ringing with recipes for <laughs> <laughs> for nasturtium tubers. Uh, uh, and I, look, I'm sure they're edible, but you know, I do think there's a lot of things that uh, they've never really become popular vegetables for a reason. Mm. Uh, and and I just think you know, you, you know, we know the things that we eat and we enjoy, and it's fun to have a crack at some of these sort of slightly offbeat things occasionally. But you nearly always go back to your staples. Yeah, <laughs> you do tend to. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I've done the ox. I remember growing that that chrysanthemum thing, the Chinese. Uh, what do they call it? Chinese the something greens. One. Yeah. Um, it tasted like mortein, and it self seeded <laughs> itself all over the garden. It took me about four years to get rid of it. Uh, and, I mean, it had pretty white daisies on it, but I thought it was—it looked too much like pyrethrum. I wasn't really all that uh, taken by it. Yes. And I'm sure that, you know, it, it's probably quite nice in certain ways. Uh, but, yeah, I thought, well, that was a waste of my time and effort, really. I wouldn't bother it with it again. Yep. So, yeah, so there's been a few things like that that have come and gone through my garden. Oh, they're, they're fun. I mean, I love trying to grow something that's unusual, yeah. uh, particularly if it's edible. Because oh, yeah. Because that's the whole fun of doing it. But, yeah, most of them haven't remained in my veggie garden. No, no, no. They're, they're a once-off thing. You have yeah. a crack at them and exactly. you know, try them out. And then, yes, you go back to your spuds and your beans and your zucchinis and, yeah, all that. And there's all the plenty classic. of different heirloom varieties within those main staples to have fun with. Oh, of course there is. Yes. Yeah, and, and you still know what to do with them and, and vaguely what they're going to be like when you've cooked them. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. I have to tell you, though, one of the weirdo vegetables that I did plant that I still keep and occasionally use, although you've got to think ahead, and I'm not a good cook as far as thinking ahead is concerned, but that's the acon. Mm. Um, which was Polymnia sonchifolia and is now smileier or something, smallier. Some, it's had another name change anyway. Okay. Would you eat it raw or would you cook it? I've done both. Both? Yeah. Yep. Uh, the issue with it is, though, you've got to think ahead because you need to lift the tubers and give them some sun for 24 hours to 48 hours to bring up the sugars. Mm. So if you take them out of the garden and, and eat them straight away, they're bland. They've got no flavour at all. But if you bring them up, put them out where they get some light uh, for a day or so, then it brings up the sugars and they're quite sweet. Mm-hmm. And you can peel them and eat them like an apple, and they're perfectly tasty, lovely and crunchy and, and yet moist and, and what have you. And I've used them in stir fries. Uh, I've just sliced them up and, and microwaved them like I might a, a zucchini. Uh, no purple colour. No purple colour, no, good. funnily enough. <laughs> it's always a good sign when you don't have a purple colour coming out. Um, and the yakon is a pretty plant because mm. uh, you've got these great big interesting leaves and then you get a slightly disappointing yellow daisy at the top but you know pretty enough big leaves really big leaves big yeah leaves. really good it's yes. great in a sort of a tropical-esque mm. border yeah. or whatever yeah. um and yeah you get all these daily like tubers underneath and so you just keep the smaller ones and plant them back and eat the big ones and i think the yakon well, is a great nobody vegetable. told me to take them out for 24 hours and leave them in the sun ah. so i gave up on that was another one i gave yeah, up because they were tasteless. tasteless yeah well exactly but so if i you, thought Okay, I mean, I, I really liked the leaves. Yeah. It was great filling up a corner. Oh, 
it's but, probably better putting it out, actually out in a perennial border or, yes. you know, instead of taking up veggie garden room That's for right. it, uh, actually use it in the flower garden mm. yep. for its lovely foliage. Yep. But, yes, you do need to put the tubers out for about 24, well, there 48 you go. hours. I've learned something. And then it's very sweet. Okay. So it's actually one of those weirdo vegetable slash fruity things that I've tried that I actually would recommend okay. uh, as having a uh, in the garden. And, of course, it's pretty enough that if you never use the tubers, it, it's actually worth growing as a plant. Yep. It's very high in inulin as well, so it's good for diabetics. Yeah, too. yeah, well, yeah, because yeah. it sweetens, but it's not mm. sugary. Mm. Mm. So it's not glucosey sweetness. And apparently in, in Peru, they give them to the kids like you'd give a kid an apple. Right. And the kids go around munching on yakons, uh, uh, which I never saw when I was in Peru, but apparently it happens. Uh, okay. Well, I might have to have another go at it. Yeah, look, I think you should, Pam. I uh, mean, it grew easily enough. There was yeah. no problem with, oh, with getting it up. If you grow a dahlia, you can grow a, a oh, yakon. Yes. So just pl- pump plenty of water into it during the summer months. Yeah. Uh, and it's happy. Yeah. So, okay. And I've seen them sort of up, you know, two metres and more oh, tall, yeah. fabulous-looking mm. plant. Yeah, no, they, they get mm. quite huge. Yeah, yeah. so I've got a big pot of it at the nursery I'm going to divide for sale again this year. I haven't done it for a few years, so uh, so uh, later in the winter I'll divide it all up and I'll be potting some. I might bring you one in. Yeah, bring me one in. Yeah. I'd love one and I'll have another go at it. All right, but, yes, you do have to think ahead because you can't leave them out in the sun for weeks because otherwise they just shrivel and, yep. and dry out. Fair enough. So you've got to think about 48 hours ahead Yep. if you're going to use them. Yep. Okay. So, and that's really hard for me. <laughs> I don't know how cooks sort of go out and they plan for the whole week. Uh, I get home and I think, oh, what will I do tonight? <laughs> you know, so if I haven't already lifted the yakons, they're not going to be part of the menu. So, yeah. yeah okay. Got to be more organised. Yep. Okay, we've got a few callers to get through. First up, I think we have uh, Loz in Merricks. Good morning. Good morning, all. Panel, thank you very much for your program. Um, it's Roz. Um, oh, Roz. We've okay. got some lily pilly hedges which are being eaten madly. Mm. Um, just wondering whether great munching out of all new leaves, old leaves, and everything. And just wondering whether anyone's got any ideas. Unfortunately, Gwen, they're not there today, but maybe Stephen, you've got an idea. So the leaves are being eaten by something, not like yes. as in a bug or something. No, it's being no, eaten no, off. no munching. Well, you know. <laughs> There's no sign of a caterpillar or anything under the leaves? Nothing we can see. Mm. It's got sort of like a sooty mould, you know, the greying on the. Yeah, some so of the it's leaves. probably got scale in it as as well. I can't see any real scale, but um, um, this has been going on for months. And um, someone said maybe confidor, or I'm a bit loath to do that. Um, and I'm just wondering <sighs> yeah. whether without you know, knowing what the problem is, I mean, it's all very well to say let's throw some confidor around or whatever, but. You're sure it's not actually uh, rodents or possums or something it's been like... It's an awful lot and I've never seen any sign of them. <laughs> Do you um, go out I in the evenings? Up, in, I think if you Google it, I think there's a green beetle. There's some, there's some issue with them and I'm just wondering what... Um, unfortunately, I haven't... <clears throat> got the name of it. I just suddenly yeah. thought I'd ring up Look, and check with I'm you. I'm but... not mad keen on any sort of insect chemical thing, no, I have to well, say. I mean, well, Confidor is supposed to be one of the more... Uh, sort of environmentally friendly insecticides, but really at the end of the day it's something that you're using to kill something. So there's always going to be risks involved. Well, I believe uh, these are beetles that live and then they, they come up, you know, um, and eat and then go back again. Um, well, I so. guess the the only good thing about that could be is that the, the plants will get a rest at some stage during the year and probably refurbish themselves. So maybe if you're prepared to put up with a bit of seasonal mess. Mm. Um, this has been going on for... Um, six months really yeah 
Well, I'd still give it a good 12 months and see if everything settles down before I would take any um, remedial action. Uh, I wouldn't start using anything until I could see it through a 12-month cycle and see whether the plants refurbish of their own accord. Uh, And if they don't, well, then maybe you've got to start looking at what you do. Uh, And, of course, one of the things you could do is rip out all the lily pillies and plant something else. Yeah, thanks, Stephen. (laughs) I knew you'd say that. Seriously long hedges. Yeah. 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 And look, that's um, the issue with hedges. If you plant something and then you find you've got a problem with it, we've then... never had a problem before. They're fifteen years old. Yeah. And okay. um... Well, I'd give it a good twelve months before I stepped in. But the other thing I would do is go out at night with a torch to yeah. s- try and get a yeah. positive ID as yeah. to what is actually doing the damage. Yeah, yeah. You need to know what it is because, for instance, like if it were something like a possum, then confidor is not going to have any impact no, at all. No, no. So you're just going to be wasting I your think time. If it's possums, it's a lot of possums. You know what I mean? Yeah. Right. Well, and that's always possible. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's no other signs of them anywhere else. So, yeah. But um, yeah, look, I'm, I'm with Pam on this one. Get your torch out at night. Go out a few nights in a row and have a good hunt around. See what you can see because Thanks I think you it. need okay. to pin it down before you make any sort of efforts right, to get rid of it. Right, I was just wondering whether anyone else has got the same problem. I haven't I heard of any of it. Well, I believe it's around, but um, okay. I just don't know what... Well, we'll probably know, get 10 phone do. calls now, Ros, about... Terrific, I'm listening. Yeah, so you never know. One of our viewers might have the same issue and have worked out what to do, but... Um... Anyway, really enjoy the program. Thanks oh, that's very good. Much. Okay. Yes, bye. Bye. And uh, next up, we're going to Michael, who I believe is in Sydney. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, guys. Thanks very much for your program. Very, very um, great listening to us. And um, and how do you get it in Sydney? Are you streaming us live, Michael? I am. I'm doing on the um, on the internet at the moment. So okay. Streaming through. Yeah. Wonderful. So I've, I've pulled you up, and uh, I've bought some of those orchids from Eugene Cole. So they the ones that they have flowering there, and um, I've got a couple. One died, but I can't get the other one to flower either. Like it just seems like I have to keep going back and buying new orchids from Coles all the time to try and get those beautiful flowers. That's probably their wicked and evil plan. <laughs> yeah. Like I remember being in Japan and seeing how beautiful they can. Yeah. I think we're talking about there. perhaps the Phalaenopsis style like of orchids. Yeah. Yes, I'd right. say so. Yeah, and okay, right. I would have thought in Sydney you'd actually have an environment where Phalaenopsis would do better than mm. even we'd do with them down here in Melbourne. Where are you putting them, Michael? I'm having a disastrous time. It's just I'm in a sort of a terrace place, and it's under the courtyard area, and so there's um, a bit of shading, a bit of lighting. Um, but yeah, nothing. That's about it, really. How often are you watering them? Um, well, I do it. I do do it once or twice a week. They yep. said because it did read the directions, don't do it too much and um, give it the uh, what is it? That spongy sort type of fung- um, moss. Um, oh, sphagnum moss. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I've done all that for it, but you could be overwatering them. A, a colleague of mine at work reckons. Um, you water them. You water them on your payday every two weeks, um, right? Okay. And, and and just a little bit. He he would he would not put on more than about half a cup of water um, at any okay. one time. So once every couple yeah, of weeks, so it could be that. The other thing to consider with Phalaenopsis, of course, is that they're getting to a point where they're quite cheap, and yep. uh, and if you buy one in bud or in flower, they flower for months. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I see them as a very expendable thing. I buy them like I would a bunch of flowers, and I, I enjoy them it. for about ten times longer than I'd enjoy a bunch of flowers, uh, yep. and then I ditch them. Um, okay. uh, I see it as good value. 
Well, that's what you uh, yeah. do with your tulips too. Yeah, and my tulips, I you know, I stick them in the ground. If they don't flower the next year, that doesn't matter because I can plant a different colour. Mm. Um, so a great way to yeah, look at it. It's exactly it. Yeah, and I think look, I think sometimes be you know, I mean, we'll spend money on groceries and not expect them to be there in a week. Um, mm. But you know, we spend money on some plants and we assume that we're going to be able to be this wonderful horticulturalist that will keep them going forever. <laughs> and yeah. sometimes you just won't be able to. The conditions within your own home or garden just won't suit a group of plants. Mm. Uh, but there's no reason why you shouldn't keep buying them and just as soon as the last flower drops off, ditch the plant because it's only going to make you feel guilty uh, and then go out and buy a new one. And replace the beauty again. Yeah, exactly. And, I mean, they're available virtually Mm. year-round and, you know, you you can have a white one this time and get bored with that and have a pink one next time. uh, You can have whatever colour you want almost in Phalaenopsis now. Um, And I would treat them like a bunch of flowers. I think it's the safest and easiest way to go and you won't feel guilty. Done, done. <laughs> and, and, and look, if, right now. They, they are a kind of a long-term investment as well, and I've got one at the moment that's budding up and it was probably going to flower in the next couple of months. Um, but right. I got given that by a friend um, about... Oh, almost two years ago now, and it's taken me two years to get it to a stage where it's going to flower and again. That says and a lot too, yeah. because you've had this thing so with a couple of leaves in a pot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd rather have one in flower. There as well. Mm. All right, Michael, I hope we've made you feel less guilty. You have done great. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much. Okay, good on you. Bye. Take care. Bye. And uh, we've got our good friend, Fermi in Reedsdale. Good morning, Fermi. Oops. Fermi, where are you? Fermi, hello. Oh, Fermi's been cut off. That's probably something that should have happened years ago, but, you know, he'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> Try again, Fermi. Yes, We'd like we to hear from you. Yes, we don't know what's happened there. No, okay. It wasn't our fault, we don't think. <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. I think he might be ringing in now. So with a bit of luck, we might have him up in, the, in a couple of minutes. <laughs> All right, in the meantime. Is there? Is there? Is All there? right. Okay, we'll try again. Uh, you there, Fermi? Yes, sorry. Wonderful. Uh, was it your modern, fault or ours? These modern phones. I, put, <laughs> I was taking you off speaker and suddenly put you on transfer instead. Oh, oh okay. Oh, so where okay. were we going? <laughs> <laughs> you went to the other phone. Oh, did we? Oh, how clever of us. Uh, yeah. dear. I, I actually, this is a question for James because he's yep. a um, uh, researcher, aren't you, on that, uh, other, that TV program? Yep. You're That's allowed right. to say Gardening Australia. It's fine. You can say oh, it. I'm sorry. I wouldn't want to offend you, Stephen. <laughs> Don't be like that, Fermi. Uh, James, I actually watched the program last night, yep. and um, um, Jerry had a question uh, that he was answering about importing seeds. Yep. And he said, uh, somebody said, should I be imp- I've got a source of seeds from overseas. Should I be importing them? Yep. And he said, no. And I thought, I won't say what I said out loud. <laughs> you were incensed, weren't you, Fermi? Yeah, because I thought, that's rather uh, short-sighted. Right. Um, and I was just wondering, I'm presuming he was talking about vegetables, because he was talking about a... He was talking uh, about a cucumber, cucumber virus. Cucumber virus yeah. or something. Yep. Uh, and although I do sort of think that most viruses aren't transmitted by seed... Um, I do wonder. Well, that one, that one specifically, I think, did come in in contaminated seed oh, in some okay. way, shape, or form. Yeah. Um, and and look, it is one of those things that's really it's a it's a tricky subject because I mean we we're, we're isolated in Australia and that yeah. has the advantages that you know we don't have a lot of major major pest and disease problems that happen elsewhere in the world. Yeah. Um, now we will get them eventually, but we we've got a bit of a buffer because we are so isolated. Um, 
But look, it's it's a it's a tricky topic actually. We're we're in the process of um, putting together a story with the new quarantine facility that's being built just north of Craigieburn. Oh yes. Um and and I think I think watching watching that uh, story would would definitely answer all your questions. Um, but the process that they go through to to um, make sure that all the plant material that comes into Australia is is disease free, um, it, it includes a lot of a lot of seed grown material as well. Um, they they will be the, cultivating seeds in those greenhouses for many generations and monitoring them for any potential pest and disease problems that can um, show up um, very long after the fact as well. Um, you know, it might not show up in the first generation, but it could show up in a second or third generation. Um, we went on a recce there a few weeks ago, and and um, well, you know a lot of this stuff was news to me as well. I always thought mm. you know, there's there's no way that you would transfer a virus through through seed material or something like that. But look, apparently it can happen. Um, yeah. But at that being said, there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff being imported that uh, quarantine just don't pick up as well in terms yeah. of seed. So it's a bit of an iffy area to be yeah. honest. And I guess television has to be fairly careful that they're not That's encouraging exactly right. people. Yeah to do something that probably they shouldn't be. I mean, there are quite legitimate ways to bring seed in, and there are lists of things you can... There's a lot of seed that is allowed into the country. There's a lot of seed that isn't, and we don't promote um, bringing seeds in that are prohibited. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, our garden club that I belong to, one of our tenets is that we want to grow something new from seed. Mm -hmm. And, um, And the only way to grow something new from seed is to get it in from overseas mm. because uh, it's new because it's not actually here yet. Yeah, yeah it may and, not be new somewhere else. <laughs> yeah, so um, that's one of the things I just took issue with and you really couldn't have um, uh, cleared the air here with what I was saying last night. But it, was just, <laughs> it was just against uh, everything I've held to believe in uh, terms of being able to grow things that you want to grow. and. Sure. Um, and particularly, you know, we, we do have a process with quarantine to do a weed risk assessment if something is particularly new or isn't, um, uh, you know, and, and people have um, done those and been able to get new plants into Australia. And, uh, you know, not all of us are uh, big nursery companies that can afford to do the... Um, the, you know, the importing of uh, plants and all mm, that. It is a very expensive process, mm. potentially. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, it's huge. I mean, well, we can only just be glad that we didn't amalgamate with New Zealand because their laws are even weirder. <laughs> yes, so. you can almost get nothing into New Zealand now. Well, unless mm. it's already been there, you can't get it in. Yeah. So, in fact, it's actually destroying their nursery industry bit yeah. by bit. Their nurseries are closing down all over the place and, because and there's nothing novel. What's really stupid over there is when they change the name of something botanically or taxonomically, they change the name, they then decide, well, that plant hasn't been in Australia, in New Zealand before. And so they've actually gone to nurseries and, and told them to get rid of... or not told them, they've actually confiscated stock of plants that have been growing there for generations, but because it's now got a new name, they don't allow them to grow it. I mean, they are really strange. That's yeah. nuts. Yeah, and, and I think we have to be careful that we don't go that way here because mm. it has had a huge impact on the nursery industry yeah. in New Zealand. I mean, I remember being there as a, a young apprentice and working in nurseries in New Zealand and at that stage, way back decades ago, well, uh, they, three, yeah. Yeah, they, <laughs> we were still using 
chalk and, and boards <laughs> and things back then. But, um, but their nursery industry was far in advance of ours and they were exporting plants to Spain and Japan mm. and all over the world and it was a huge business there and it left us for dead. Uh, but they had almost no quarantining restrictions on bringing things in either. And I remember working at uh, Harrison's Nursery in Palmerston North where their quarantined new azaleas were the ones with the red labels on. They were in the nursery with the other azaleas. They were taking cuttings off them. Uh, but they weren't allowed to sell those plants because they were under quarantine. And so, you know, their, their situation was so exceedingly lax. I mean, my jaw dropped open when I saw what they were getting away with over there. Um, and so I guess they had to tighten it a bit. But I think they went too far the other way. Not from one extreme to the other. Yeah, and I think we are potentially going the same way. I mean, it's getting tougher and tougher to bring plants in. It's getting really hard to get through quarantine. Uh, they seem to be going out of their way to kill your plants when you put them into quarantine so you won't be stupid enough to do it again Um, uh, instead of trying to look after things so that they come through the other end actually alive Uh, and it's becoming more and more expensive which of course puts people underground just Mm. like anything else when something's illegal people will do it illegally if something's fully legal and easy and straightforward then people do it in the right way uh, and everybody functions properly and Mm. I have this great belief that the quarantine should be rigorous but it should be as bureaucratically simple and as cheap as possible so that people will do things the right way. By making it expensive and really quite difficult to bring plant material in, um, then people are smuggling things down their bras and in their knickers and you name it and things are getting in. Uh, I mean, there's no way they're going to be picking up on all the stuff that's coming through. And as a nurseryman, I mean, I have, you know, some uh, stake in keeping diseases and problems out of the country. Um, But I still think that, you know, if I want to bring plants in, I should be able to do it for almost next to nothing so that I'll do all the right things. Because I know of quite a number of nurserymen over the years that have been sprung, Mm. um, importing material uh, illegally because it was just getting too hard. And so, yes, it turns us all into criminals potentially. So I think the government needs to relook at this. By making it more complicated and expensive, that does not stop us getting these diseases because they get in anyway. Mm. So it just seems like a money-making exercise in the end, mm. which is a bit frightening. Anyhow, I'm, I'm sorry that you were offended last night, no, me. Definitely offended by it. <laughs> but the main thing was that he wasn't sort of saying, oh, you know, um, if you don't import um, these plants that could carry the lettuce uh, mosaic or whatever it was, mm. or cucumber mosaic, um, it was sort of saying don't import any seeds. And then uh, that's really ridiculous. I know that there are certain companies, like RHS, the, the Royal Horticultural Society in the uh, UK, got so put off by Australia's restrictions that they've stopped, if you're a member of RHS in Australia, you're not entitled to their seed exchange, mm. which yeah, uh, used to be difficult. one of the, the mm. probably the only reasons for somebody in, in Australia to belong to it, because their journal is rubbish. And, <laughs> Ooh! Oh, <laughs> yeah, well, Fermi, there you go. I, I'm, I keep my membership of the RHS because every so often I decide I want to go to Chelsea. Chelsea, oh, um, yes. Yeah, well, that is probably, if you're, if you're a travelling sort of person. Yeah, and I yes. look, I can sort of agree with you about the magazine. It has yeah. gone downhill in uh-huh. recent years. It's become more sort of uh, well, generalist. Well, the, uh, the, the, the general public one, which is, you know, you might as well be, be buying the, the Women's Weekly. Uh, and then they've got the... Um, uh, the the more sort of for the horticulturalist sort of one. And, yeah, well, the uh, plants and the horticulturalist one I also subscribe to, and yeah. I find that a very good magazine. Yeah, and that, that's quite good. But you have to that's an extra subscription. It's not like you, you exactly. decide one or the other. In fact, you can get it without going the other way. Yeah. 
So, yeah, so the RHS probably has limited value. The only other issue is that I've got my membership when I was 18, 17 or 18, oh, right. when I went to England. And so I've got one of the earliest numbers still existing, I think, and I feel, <laughs> I, I, I feel obliged to keep it. <laughs> uh, the last time I went to Wisley, they looked at my membership ticket and said, there seems to be a number missing. <laughs> And, yeah, so I've had my membership for quite a long time. I should be getting some sort of special dispensation now, I would have thought, after all these years. Well, as our friend Otto said, you know, if he'd actually taken that life membership when he joined the the society, it would have paid. Oh, I wish I had. Uh, well, I wouldn't have had the money at the time to take up a life <laughs> that's membership. Pro- but, that's the main problem. Yeah. When well, you, I when did it with the IDS, the International Dendrology Society. Oh. When I joined that, I took out a life membership, which at the time, about 30 years ago, was about £300, which was oh, an yeah. awful lot of money. Mm. But it's more than paid off since. And I anticipate living till I'm 100. So, you know, a life <laughs> membership is going to be very valuable to me in time. Well, I did that the same with uh, the Alpine Garden Society and the, Scot- uh, the uh, North American Rock Garden Society and the Scottish Sense. Um, and um, I took the, the first two out um, 20 years ago. And th- from this year on, my uh, membership of them is free, except for paying for the seeds. <laughs> there you go. It's worth hanging in there for. Yes, yes. you just have to live long enough <laughs> yes. to make it beneficial. Yeah, of course, they hope you don't. Um, <laughs> well, yes, today actually becomes a bit of a problem for some of those societies if too many people do become uh, life members because um, they don't have the ongoing income. They have yeah. income for a little while. That's, that's extra. Yeah. Well, I'm wondering when the South African Botanic Society is going to catch up with me because I took out a life membership uh, well, probably 15 or 20 years ago with that, and so I get their journals and all that sort of thing on a regular basis. I saw it as my um, souvenir when I went to South Africa. Oh, that yeah. was my main souvenir. I think it cost me around about 300 Australian dollars, but they, it must be costing them money to send me stuff now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well... Thanks very much for listening and to my gripes. That's okay. a pleasure for me any time. I'm glad you've got some of it off your chest anyway. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> Without going into expletives. Yep. <laughs> yep. Okay. Thanks Bye. Bye. Right, and uh, very quickly, we need to go to Mungo, who's out in Broadmen- Broadmeadows. Sorry, Mungo. Good morning. Hello. Uh-oh. Hello. Uh-uh. Mungo. We've lost him now. We seem to have lost Mungo. Oh, dear. We're having a few problems this morning. We are. Technical difficulties. Yes, yes. yes. No idea? No, no. Um, We'll just see if we can get him back. Um, But we are. We do only have five minutes left. And uh, what I should quickly mention um, is that bookings have just actually opened for the big kangaroo paw celebration. Ah. That's going to take place down at uh, Royal Botanic Gardens, uh, Cranbourne Gardens. Um, now, this comes up in November, mm-hmm. and it's it's going to be the most amazing um, celebration down there. Mm. Now, it starts off with um, a big kangaroo paw picnic over the weekend of Saturday the 19th, Sunday the I 20th of November. they're not serving November. any kangaroo food, you know, <laughs> no kangaroo tail soup. Or well, <laughs> who knows, who knows. But... Um, <laughs> There's, uh, for a start, down at the uh, the Australian Garden, they're planting over 5,000 kangaroo paws. Goodness. And uh, they've, um, they're going to have, um, in the gallery there at the Visitor Centre, they're going to have a themed exhibition of all sorts of artworks relating to um, kangaroo paw and uh, its relatives. There'll be, on, on the picnic, 
uh, weekend. There'll be guided tours by Angus Stewart, which you do need to book for. Uh, there'll be the launch of uh, Angus's uh, new landscape violet, kangaroo paw. Yeah. Mm. Actually, I've got a couple of plants of that. They sent me out some of the new cultivars, and yep. I've potted them up at the nursery to see what they do, and they've come through the winter surprisingly well. Yep. I mean, we've had a cold winter mm. up there, and I expected them to go black and what have you. Uh, and they're sitting up there out in full open sun mm. and looking very green and ha- happy mm. to well, there's also, there's also on that weekend, there's going to be um, a special Growing Friends plant sale of kangaroo paws and cotton heads. There'll be floral art uh, demonstrations using them. There'll be live music, um, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But then following that, on the next Thursday, Friday and Saturday, there's going to be a three-day symposium. Now, um, there's an amazing lineup of guest speakers for this symposium, and the symposium has been deliberately divided up into three days because um, day one is uh, specifically uh, dealing with uh, botanical, horticultural, and zoological uh, people. So that's that's really uh, with an emphasis on the science. Yeah, side. so it's the technical sort yep. of thing. On the Friday, uh, the emphasis is more for botanic gardens, parks and gardens, nursery, landscape, uh, cut flower people. Yeah. Uh, so that's on more of the breeding, the marketing, the design and cultivation. And then the third day on the Saturday is for home gardeners and enthusiasts. Oh, fantastic. So um, it's going to be a truly amazing um, happening, I think. As I say, bookings have just opened for the symposiums. Uh, now, day one will actually be held uh, here in Melbourne, um, whereas the other two will be held down at uh, down at Cranbourne itself. I'm just trying to see where day one. Yeah, day one will be held in Domain House. Oh, yes. To give other people a chance to get along to that. That's the science day. Um, but as I say, day two and day. Three will be held down in uh, the Tarnock Room down at Cranbourne. Mm. Uh, now, some of the guest speakers, Professor Stephen Hopper um, is coming over from overseas. He's um, the keynote uh, presenter each day. He's regarded as one of the world's leading botanical experts on the, the, the whole family. Angus Stewart, of course, uh, will be very much involved. People that we know that are also going to be involved, people like Jim Fogarty, um, who's a very highly respected uh, landscape designer. Um, Loretta Childs, who mm-hmm. also is an experienced landscape, landscape designer and uses a lot of kangaroo paws in her designs. John Arnott, of course, is going to be involved. Roger Elliott, of course, is going to be in- involved. And lots and lots of other speakers. Now, um, it's not cheap. Um, the, for the Science Thursday, for a non-member of the Friends, it's two hundred. For Friends, one hundred and seventy-five, or for students, a hundred dollars. For the Industry uh, Friday Day, again two hundred, one hundred and seventy-five, or a hundred for students. On the uh, Gardener's Saturday, it's a bit cheaper, one hundred and fifty for non-members, one hundred and twenty-five for Friends members, or eighty for students. There is a discount if you want to go to the full three days. Um, but to book, um, you go to symposium at rbgfriendscranbourne.org.au. So I'll repeat that, symposium at rbgfriendscranbourne.org.au or you can phone Chloe and her number is 9725 That's 9725 Six, nine. And now we better go. We do. We have <laughs> to go immediately. We'll, of course, uh, be back again 
next week. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.